after studying, as you know, five non-Jewish authors and their views on Jews and Judaism. And yet, some of you may have noticed that there's been a strategic shift in the last two or three weeks. Rather than spending two weeks per book as I originally had planned, and really... Right, yeah. I apologize for that. We love it, okay. Okay, good. That's a good statement of confidence. Uh, rather than doing it that way, we decided us all, to give each book more time and to try to learn more about Jews and Judaism through the eyes of the non-Jewish author rather than focusing on the author per se. I'm certainly aware of the shift that had taken place. Hence, we focused on anti-Semitism and how to change that perception rather than simply speaking about the phenomenon of Mark Twain writing about Jews and Judaism, which he did a hundred years ago. We focused on specific events in the source by Michener, rather simply our concern with why James Michener wrote this book. Right. So, therefore, last week we spoke about idolatry, about Abu Dazarah, focusing on the section in the book called An Old Man and His God. And we did raise the question whether or not idolatry could in fact be a modern phenomenon. And we used Fackenheim, Emil Fackenheim's wonderful work, which speaks about idolatry as a modern possibility. So my concern was to take an idea out of the book and then to bat it around and see to what degree it's still relevant to us. Again, rather than trying to focus on what we originally began with, which is why James Michener wrote this book. Right? So what we're going to do is to spend this week and next week finishing up James Michener but I would like to this week try to go back to my original notion and raise the question why did a non-Jew write this book? Write a book which is a thousand page book about Jews and Judaism. Remember the original thesis was how strange it is that so often non-Jews find the Jewish people to be an item of fascination and are willing to commit five years of their lives studying, researching, and writing about Jews. We began with Mark Twain in his letter, his article about Judaism in Harper's Magazine in 1898. Then we came to James Michener in the 60s. In the 70s was Paul, it was um, Ernest Sanderhaus wrote The Jewish Mystique. Social anthropologist, very well received book, and yet he writes for the Jewish mystique. In the 80s was Paul Johnson writing about a history of the Jewish people. He's a good Christian. He's a great Christian. Why is he writing about Jews and Judaism? In the 1990s it was James Cahill who was something called the gift of the Jews. How a small desert tribe changed the way we all think and feel. So here are five works by non-Jews, prominent non-Jews, academic non-Jews, world famous novelists who all found it necessary to write about Jews and Judaism. So tonight we're going to begin at the end of the book, those who read the book, and go backwards. Meaning that we're going to start at the end and try to get some insight as to why James Michener wrote the source. And then next week we'll with that insight, go to our last session about James Mishnah, namely the saintly men of Tzfat, which will give us a little bit of an insight into Kabbalah, into mystical teachings of Judaism, and how the Christian world treated the Jews at that point in time. 
So now, we're going to raise the question, what is the key to this book? Or better, what does James Mishnah see as the secret of Jewish survival? Or better, what is it that captured James Mishnah's attention about the Jews? What we'd like to try to do to understand this work and to try to get the answer to these questions is to enter into the mind of the author as he prepared to write this book or even before he wrote the book and try to understand what was the process what took place again I'm now going back to my original question and focusing on the non-Jewish author and asking him the question why are you writing about me why are you spending five years of your life researching concerned about my people my history right what intrigued you about me about us now the first step in trying to figure this out would be which what would be your first step Reading the book. Sorry? Reading the book. Well, yeah, that goes up then. Yeah. So one person did not read the book. Thank you for that. Admission of guilt. Confession. Yom Kippur. Yeah? Okay, now one that uses background, right, and try to find what item in his background, good, triggered this interest in the Jews. Right? Okay, good. And we did it with Mark Twain, if you recall. We did it with Mark Twain, and we read encyclopedia articles about him to figure out why did Mark Twain write a 1998 article in a major publication, Harper's Circulation of Five Million at that point in time, which in America was only 75 million people, so a lot of people reading this article. So that was correct, that's one possibility. But I rejected that possibility for an interesting reason, which you don't know about, which we'll get back to that. Yeah? What? I was thinking about looking at what, what else he wrote. Like, if he writes a lot about other different cultures and stuff like that, and then writing about the Jews isn't so special anymore. Okay, what's so what we know? Does he write about other cultures? Yeah. yeah. Example. And well, who had his stuff? Hawaii. 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 Everyone works that about a different, space. different place. Uh, space, right. Yeah. That's not about a people. It's not about a culture. Yeah, but then it still diminishes, in a sense, what, like, when you write a Mark Twain, okay, look how great the Jews are. He didn't do that to any other people. Correct. But now he's saying, oh, he, just got, he has five other books about X, Y, and Z. Communities okay, and then one can raise the question, which, you know, I'm not capable of answering because I read all of his books. One can raise the question and ask the question, is this simply a novel among novels, or is it something special about this book? Right? And those who read all of his works. I'm, I, frankly, I only read this book because it's about Jews and Judaism. I don't really care about the Hawaiians, and I don't have time to read about the Hawaiians or about, about space or about Texas or any of his other works. So is this something different or something just simply as you're saying the same and there's nothing special about it that's a question that one could answer if one were to read all of his books and just say I come to a conclusion about that so let's we'll come back to that perhaps when we look into his background right and see that I'm going to speculate that something else is at stake over here okay so again we could do what Daniel said which go into his background and find out what is he all about and which may answer the question as to why he wrote this book that's one approach we'll come back to that approach is there any other approach that you could take? Well, where would you start? What's the first question you want to ask? First question you want to ask is, what year did he write the book? Right? So, sorry? What was going on? Exactly, very good. So you, the book is copyright, thank you for looking, 1965. Okay, good. Now, 
the book is published in 65, so we could presume that it took about three or four years to write, early 60s, good. <coughs> so now, what event captured, let's say, the world's attention in that early part of the 60s that would perhaps attract a man such as this to the subject of Jews and Judaism? You're too young. Just don't even think. Good. So it came to my mind, I'm only speculating now, good point, speculating now, that the Eichmann trial was something that was so prominent on television, so millions upon millions of people are watching this event. Famous movie was made about this event called Man of the Glass Food. Right? Which is an extraordinary movie. And that is a symptom, one second, of popular culture. When somebody's willing to make a movie about an event, it means that it's captured the public attention. Somebody's not around, whatever it may be. It's a cultural phenomenon. You have a second, Dave? Yeah. Um, quick question. I'm not familiar. He was, a, he was a Nazi, like he was a general of the, of yeah. the Nazis or something? Eichmann was the architect of the final solution. The final solution takes place around, there are different things about this, 1937, 1938, where in a secret meeting Hitler had with his five or eight Heinrich and Himmler and other people, and they decided to finally solve the Jewish question. I think it was about 1943, one conference or something. Uh, 1942. Was, uh, no, 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 started implementing. The, yeah, the implementation happened a little bit later, but they say, Hilberg and others will say that it, the seeds were planted. Now again, this is not on tape, nobody knows, but this was supposed that in the late 30s, 37, 38, you know, Christopher Mark was what, 39? Was Christopher Mark 38? I think it was. Not even nine, it was 38. So early before that, the, the notion was we want to get rid of the Jews. We want a final solution to the Jewish question. Now, Eichmann was given the responsibility of doing this. And there's a book out that, um, uh, on the, not the Eichmann trial, but on Eichmann's testimony in answering the charges of the Israeli prosecutor, Gideon Hauser, as to why he did all of this. It's a fascinating work of his own defense. He defended himself completely. And of course, at the end of the day, it was 61, he was pronounced, it was a six-month trial, pronounced guilty and hung, and his ashes were scattered over the Mediterranean, right, for crimes against the Jewish people. Right? So this event captured certainly American attention, if not worldwide attention, right? Now, it's interesting that it's the first time in, let's say, 15 years, let's go from 1945, which was the Nuremberg Trials, 46, to 1960-61, first time in 15 years that a Nazi is tried as a war criminal. So what's interesting about that is that, well, 15 years is not a lot of time. So why did it all of a sudden capture the world's attention? Now, I was a youngster at the time, but even I was watching it as a 10-year-old, as a 9-year-old. I'm watching it. But why at that point did it all of a sudden become so significant? Well, it wasn't Nuremberg. It wasn't uh, the Americans or the Russians or the, or the British. Okay. Um, it gave a lot of it, to Israel. Okay, good. So it was Israel who captured him in a very dramatic fashion from Argentina. Right? It's also a movie. It's called House on Garibaldi Street. Why do you know all these movies? Huh? 
I'm, I don't know them. I just, I mean, I don't see them. I just want, know them. I know the name. You, you go to the movies. I don't go to the movies. I just know the name. But actually, I think I read the book. How's it go? I read the book. It's a good book. So now, Harvey's right. I think that because Israel had done, and this is pre-67, this is way before the beginning of the delegitimization of the Jewish state. It's way before David became Goliath. Right? Prior to 67, it was the Arab world who was Goliath against the small Israeli world, which is David. Post-67, there was a very subtle and not so subtle shift in world opinion that all of a sudden David became Goliath and it's the big Jewish monolithic horrifying monster against the poor Arabs. Right? And that actually grew that myth. Despite the hundred million Arabs surrounding the state of Israel and the who knows uh, what is it, how many Arab countries are there? Ten surrounding it or eight surrounding it? Seven or eight. Seven or eight countries. And it's a little tiny state. And it's little, Israel's a small tiny place. And you've all this other all it's a little tiny place. It's the state of New Jersey, and it's all in the state of New Jersey, unless, and almost instantly conquerable, destroyable, with all these Arabs, and that little David became the Goliath. It's an incredible myth that has been perpetrated upon the world. Who, who created the myth? The Arabs? Um, I don't think the Arabs are sophisticated enough to do that at that point in time. But I think the world media that Israel was so successful, look at they and they did, they were. But the fact that you won the war does not necessarily mean that you become the evil Goliath. And, and yeah, and although we are powerful, we still are small little state, and we still are ethical and right and all that. So that is this all this is pre that. So Israel was the apple of the world's eye in the pre sixty seven period of time. Good. Now, what happened in the intervening years, let's say 1945 and 1960, which highlights this Eichmann trial as an event? What really happened? Israel became a state. Okay, good. Israel became a state. That's step number one, point number one. What else happened? Uh, cultural phenomenon. What would you say? American culture? No, no. Well, uh, American culture I know, but it might, it's probably worldwide as well. I would say to you... World War II ended. Sorry? Yeah, World War II ended. But I would say to you, the world chose to forget the Nazi era. Why? Why would the world choose the 50s? Right? The 50s. The world did not think about or talk about the Nazi era. The world wanted to forget the Nazi era. Joe Wiesel wrote his book in 1956 called Night. There was nothing about Holocaust literature. You didn't study Holocaust in elementary school as we do today. There were no Holocaust museums as there are today. I feel like that period is after war, so the whole world, for the most part, rebuilt it. Okay, good. And good, correct. Welcome, so happy to see you. We're, now we're ready to start. Okay, everybody. Some people just need to make dramatic entrances, you know. What I mean? But I understand that. That's, yeah, I, I come. I come. There's nobody here that you make a dramatic entrance for. So maybe I should walk in. Just walk in again. You know, that was last class. They were here. So now. I'm willing to, to make the claim that twofold. Number one is that 
the world chose to forget the Nazi era because of rebuilding. I think you're right about that. Also because the pain of World War II was so overwhelming. And perhaps, perhaps the Cold War, okay, dominated world attention. Good. Exploding atom bombs and the concern with Stalinism and the aftermath of Stalinism. Is it far-fetched to say that the world felt guilty of not having done enough? The world has abandoned the Jews. The St. Louis is a classic example of a ship leaving Nazi Germany full of people and not finding a welcome port. Not in Cuba, not in Florida, not in any place. Go back to Germany and die. Could you imagine how horrific that, of an event that is? How immoral it is? 2,000 people were killed eventually because you couldn't find any space. And you mean they felt guilty after they let it happen? The world felt guilty. The world felt guilty. And it became became articulated in the mid-60s or late-60s when it was Thomas, I think it was Weinman, his name is, who wrote a book called The Abandonment of the Jews. Maybe in the early 70s. But it wasn't, when they sent the St. Louis government, it wasn't in the newspapers? Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, article here and there. But it's always interesting when an event takes place and people act in a certain way, right? And then we look at that same event with hindsight of 20 years, and you, we ask ourselves the question, how do we let that happen? And we can't understand it. But it's not really fair because what the world was all about then, and how you react to it, is, it was then. How did we inter Japanese in concentration camps? Now, people self-flagellate for that. And are angry themselves. But no, if you're a good historian, you try to enter into that era, think yourself back into that era, and not view that era from the hindsight of 20 years, but live that life. Would you do it again? It was yes, right? Why? Exactly. A good historian is able to walk the streets, literally, of the era in which he is writing. Literally, to know the street signs. To speak, of course, the language they're speaking over there, whatever they're speaking over there. To see the stores and how they were. Because you cannot write social history, cannot write economic history, cannot write intellectual history, which grows out of the social context, unless you know the period so well that you're living that period, though you're 25 or 500 years later. Clear? Right? Right. Clear? So good. So, if we were living back there then, we should understand why America, as free as it was, would in turn in turn the, the Japanese to understand the McCarthy era what the fears were we're not justifying we're only trying to understand why they reacted that way well if we have the hindsight now, we could, now you're, now you're not ask, asking a historical question you're asking almost a philosophical question if it were if once understood and now viewed to have been negative the way that we reacted then then the answer is Yes or no? But are you just justifying what they did wrong? I'm not judging it even. I want to only understand it before I judge it. I want to understand what took place. Like everything that happens in any given time period, there's always people for and people against. McCarthy, I'm sure there are always people for and people against it also. So you saying we have to be in that exact frame of mind, that exact everything. To understand it. To understand it. And then we could judge it. Okay. But isn't that a little bit... Justifying what they did, kind of. To understand means justifying. No, no, but the way. No, maybe it does. I'm not sure. Does 
So the important is to solve a question. If I understand the forces of the, what created the Crusades, does that mean I justify what they did? Necessarily, or? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just love the way you slant it. Like, you have to really, versus saying, know the facts, and then pass judgment type thing. As a historian, I'm not sure I don't even want to pass judgment. No, I'm just saying, like... I just want to understand the phenomenon. Huh? Wait, 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 wait. No, because you keep going back to the fact of, would we redo it again? Like, that's no, that's Gina's point. Right. That's, that's me, that's not me, that's Gina. No, and then, <laughs> the whole idea is that's a given point, but you keep ans- answering back to that, well, if we were living in that time period. By kind of saying, in that time period, it was right. I didn't use the word it was right, and I'm not saying it was right. Right, but... Keep going back. I don't understand it. I want to understand what made that phenomenon happen without even thinking about right or wrong about it. Now, if Gina wants to know, will we do it again? That's another question that we, Gina and I, can discuss privately. She wants to discuss it privately. So I don't, so I don't want to pass judgment. The story doesn't necessarily pass judgment. The story understands the era. You don't want to be an apologist. For sure not. For the, for the Absolutely era. correct. Right. Absolutely. I don't want to be an apologist. I'm lying between. Correct. Yeah, not only that. I apologize. I want to understand it, correct? Yeah? I can't help but wonder if it wasn't Jews, but if it was just some other group of people, would they would have come to their rescue? Because I, I, I do feel. It's a very important question. You know, a very important question. I think part of it was that they were Jews, maybe 20 years later, and it came out. Good question. Then they were embarrassed. I don't think they were embarrassed before that. I think they wanted to shove it under the rug. They didn't care. Absolutely. There was a very strong neo-isolationist strain in America. And they were embarrassed. Yeah, it could be. But embarrassed in retrospect. In retrospect, absolutely. Absolutely, correct. Correct, I agree. So, but my point over here is that if the world did in fact feel guilty for that intervening 15 or 20 years, then all of a sudden what explodes onto the scene is the Eichmann trial. We, the world, has been tr- have been trying to forget this period of time. World War II was very painful. It was very difficult. Now, thousands of American troops were killed. So who wants to remember that? Who's, glor- who's writing about that? We're rebuilding. Cold War fears. So who's worrying about the Nazi era? Now again, I as a youngster didn't even know about the Holocaust. Way th- right through Mag and David. To the extent when we had come into Flatbush in ninth grade, which was, um, I guess, mid-60s, and it was Yom HaShoah at a Holocaust program, and we marched into the auditorium, those who went to Flatbush, the, the same red curtains are there, right? Still there, 40 there. We marched in, and it's all dark, the candles lit, and I remember to this day, some rabbi with a flaming red beard or survivor is yelling and crying, and I started laughing. What is he talking about? I have no clue. And Eddie Sharpman, who was this, you know, uh, a uh, classmate of mine, quite, don't you know what happened? You know, he was very familiar with it. We were not. As Syrians, we were not. As Michael Davis, we were not. No clue whatsoever. Now, of course, today in Hillel, in seventh grade already, and sixth grade, kids are already aware of the Holocaust. It's become, because of Schindler's List, because of the movie called The Holocaust, because of the huge number of books that have come out in the last 15 or 20 years it's become very much on the American agenda not so in the 1950s so all of a sudden Eichmann who was the architect of the final solution bursts onto the scene and jars the world's memory and now 
not only are we resurrecting old thoughts and feelings, but a whole new generation is made aware, made aware of the Nazi era. So now, of course today again, we're aware because of museums, because of Holocaust education, in public schools, Ocean Township has a very sophisticated Holocaust program. I think in, in regular, I don't know how the yeshivas are, but I think in regular high schools that's part of like a social studies curriculum. Absolutely. And yeah. Of, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's very much so. Not and it's used to each prejudice, right? In all of America or just in the... No, all, all over the place. Oh. There are uh, curriculum. I have some of the curriculum that they use to teach the Holocaust all over. Made by non-Jews. Holocaust is a, is a now it's a cultural phenomenon. They send, they send police and fire departments to the Holocaust Museum in Washington right. so they uh-huh. understand what the abuse of authority uh, right. can lead to. And it still leads to that, so it's still there. The Wave. You saw The Wave. The Wave. It's a book and it's a movie. It's an extraordinary book about a teacher in a school who prejudices the students with all, I think, had blue eyes or something. Amazing movie. It's to teach kids about prejudice. So it does find its way to every kid's awareness, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. Even right? Earlier. I remember learning about it in like 2nd and 3rd grade. I'm going to go to, they took us in Clapbush Elementary, they took us to the, uh, had an assembly every April. Right, okay, good. Good point. Yeah, even in 3rd, 4th, right, okay, good. Yeah. Right, okay, good. So good. So now, so they were all aware. Now, but more than actually. What's interesting in that in the 1960s, to show you how much it was not a part of the intellectual scene, even Irving Greenberg writes, who taught the Holocaust course at this University, Rabbi Greenberg, Dr. Greenberg, writes in his book in his image that in the 1960s he gave he suggested to the dean, Dean Baker at the time I was there at the time that he wanted to give a course on the Holocaust and it was not viewed as academic enough to give for kids to put on the transcript of graduate school and this one had to be called totalitarian ideology of the 20th century. So the Holocaust course had to be hid behind a false label. Which is amazing. The Yeshiva University. Sorry? This is in 65, 66. So I had the course in 67 or 68, whatever, about 70 actually. So this is in the mid-60s, this is in 1970, I said the course. So he writes in his book how, how unaware American Jews or unconcerned or could not put this course down as the Holocaust course. Now, the world is captured, certainly America, but I think the world as well is captured by the Eichmann trial. If you were James Michener and you were a, a good author, as a good author trying to understand his mind, what would you look for? while you are living life. Analogously, if you're a rabbi, what do you look for week to week and day to day? Something to talk about, something to write about. Exactly. It's true. Every day, wherever I am, wherever, I'm walking on the boardwalk, I'm making a phone call, I'm in Israel on an army base, making schnitzel, right? All of that is grist for my rabbinic mill. And I'll even, you know, take notes and I'll, I'll write down, because I know schnitzel is something funny for a rabbi to make. 
So when I make my speech that last Shabbat about being in an iron base, and what, of course there's a, a, a rhyme, to, there's reason to my rhyme, and of course there's, there's a reason why I'm, that I'm going to get to about that. But I, yes, if I'm a good speaker, what I want to do is I want to throw in a schnitzel. Right. Give me a message. No, it's always good when, a rab- when I be hearing a speech, especially given by a rabbi on a Saturday. And talk about Shinitzel. <laughs> like Rabbi Harari gave a speech this week about Sammy Sosa. And that, that just that's a good one. every guy. Yeah, that's a good one, right. So that's a good rabbinic speaker. Taking events of everyday reality, what we said before, and analogizing it. Don't shake, David. You weren't here before. You can't shake. You can't analogize. <laughs> and analogizing from that common experience right to some other Torah point as opposed to good pedagogic technique as opposed to simply telling you the Torah point now I can, I'm not sure what he thought about I don't know about Sammy Sosa what he caught back and the, the, the whole how do you I don't know what he's doing there I'll tell you really fast how, how Sammy Sosa how his um, his career is always going to be um, tarnished right, okay. right because of this fight against the Hall of Fame and then there's a the point in Torah where just the same way that a person could do good his whole life and in one event change his, his reputation, a person could do bad their whole life in one event. Shuvah. Right. Extraordinary. Look how good the rabbi is. That here we have a nondescript 20-year-old who four days later remembers it. I give my right arm for a guy to remember my teacher four days later. So that's true. Four minutes later. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. But that's exactly the point. And chances are, if you remember it four days later, you remember it 40 years later. That's true. He will always remember, whenever he has Sammy Sosa, he's going to remember the lesson that's right. It's a great pedagogic technique. But when Harari latched an important Torah thought onto Sammy Sosa, which is, of course, why God created Sammy Sosa and why God put the cork in his back. Perfect. So now, again, back to our point over here. So, every good rabbi is always searching. We could always open up a book and explain a verse, and that's easy. The trick of a good pedagogue or a good rabbi on a Shabbat morning is to take that universal event. Because remember, we're talking about people with vast different backgrounds, educational, economic, Oh, you have 300 people in your shul, all from the entire spectrum. How are you going to find, it's an amazing challenge every single week, how are you going to find something that's going to relate to everybody? And most of us fail most of the time. Because we don't have Sammy Sosa doing this all the time. Right? But if you are smart, then you have to surf, whether it's newspapers, articles, movies, songs, whatever it may be, that's going to capture that opening line, his attention, and then go the next step of attaching it to a message, which you remember four days later. I'm very impressed. It's great. Next week's sermon, mine, same as Sosa. Good one. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. I need to get, nobody can cut the shoe next week from this crap. So, same thing that if, if I happen to be in Israel and I happen to be making schnitzel or on an army base, obviously the schnitzel per se is not what I'm really concerned about. But I know I'm going to capture attention with my schnitzel. And I know that I'm going to build that into a significant point that is going to hopefully be memorable. And what, what I did in terms of this whole issue, just to show you the, uh, where it built to, is that when we were in Israel, we had um, been with the army brigades and the tank commanders and all that, and then they gave, which is 110 degrees, the entire summer, it's really difficult, and 
we ask the people of command, to make this long story short, what can we do for you? We know it's tough, we know it's hard, what can we do for you? He said simply, we need a pool. It's that simple. I told him, half my friends have pools. What's the big deal? We need a pool, we can't afford it. And I had seen there that the Jews of Long Island, one synagogue in Long Island, put out a, a, um, a uh, sports center, which cost maybe fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000, and it's a basketball court, it's a weight, it's a weight room, it's a soccer field, it's nothing, and it's a, it's just, we love it, we're always there, but there's soldiers on, on this base, a thousand actually, it's, it's full, it's great, it's wonderful, and then they need a pool there. So the guys on the trip said, okay, great, we'll do it. So I committed our synagogue for $5,000, you need 40, so one guy gets 10, one guy gets 18, whatever it was, so we got it all, and I need 5,000, so, but I don't want to do it myself, so I said, I'm selling to the shul one unit, $50, and I want 100 people, right, that's all I want 100 people, that's my whole entire sales pitch, so this whole speech was towards that point, what can we do for the Israeli soldier, and you might think, the government takes care of him, it's not so, he has a great life, it's not so, his army barracks are horrific, we live in army barracks, it was horrible, Astounding. The food, I cooked it. It's horrible. That's what we do. It's horrible. I right, cooking. And they actually served that food to the soldiers. Isn't that crazy? I don't want to win the war. I'll lose the war. I wouldn't eat the food that I cook. I did all that. So at the end, and I said, you can't buy more than one unit. I said, we want to honor of our children. At the end of that whole thing, I sold 70 units. Just like that, people just jump in. One guy tells the end, says, you know, Rabbi, you could have sold ice to an Eskimo. So that's the way I built the whole entire thing. So the whole thing was to that purpose of committing us to the Israeli army, to feeling a connection, a practical connection of helping them in this very simple way. Right? So again, an author, a rabbi, looks for grist for his mill to speak about or write about. So now, back to James Mitchell. James Mitchell now is... 1960, watching the Ackman trial. Point number one. He's captured by it, and everybody's captured by it. Number two. <coughs> what else would he think about? What would you think about? You're non-Jewish, you're an author, you're looking for something to write about, and all of a sudden, Jews are highlighted on your screen for six or eight months. Right? So now, what would you think? Jews, persecution, holocaust, hatred, an indifferent world. Why? All that's point number one. Point number two. Somebody mentioned it before, notes that it was Israel who captured him. So now all of a sudden, Israel is the focal point, because this trial happened in Israel. And much more amazing than all this is, what? What was Israel trying to do with this? They would... Legitimize it, not just... Exactly, right. Right, which you mean to say, not legitimize him, but... Legitimize the, the, the child's Make Do it legitimately. Do exactly, it right. Morally. Yeah. Sorry? Make it just. Right, right. make it just. Yeah. So now look at this strange phenomenon that the architect of evil, Adolf Eichmann, is captured in a very dramatic fashion, kidnapped from Argentina, brought to Israel, and of course the easy way out is hang him. Who's going to complain? It's Eichmann after all. And instead Israel goes to the great expense of providing him with a defense attorney. International hookup. Bulletproof. Bulletproof. And again, that's part of it. Because we didn't want anybody to shoot him. Who would, not, who would not have shot him and who would have cared if anybody shot him? But no, we're not doing that. We want to try him legitimately in a just fashion. 
So now all of a sudden, Israel has become the moral capital of the world. You capture an evil human being that everybody would agree deserves death. And yet we're going to go through all the steps of a six month or eight, it may have been more, it might have been a year if I remember correctly, I'm not sure. A trial in order to try Achmed. So now, if that's the case... They could have killed them in Argentina. Sorry? They could have killed them in Argentina. Easily! Without even any fanfare. Well, to bring them back. Right. It's an amazing phenomenon. I mean, why go through all this? Because they made a great point. One about resurrection of the forgotten history of the Holocaust. Although I don't know if they thought of that when they were going through this process. They could have, I'm not sure. It might have been post facto. But either which way, captured them, could have killed them, did not kill them, brought them back and tried him legitimately in a court of law. What a statement about what Israel is all about. I mean, it really is a great statement. It's amazing. Anything less would have made us no different than, right. than him. Right. And then well, I don't, the rest no, of the world... I don't think there's nobody... No, nobody... Yeah, I don't think anybody would have actually said that. But no, no one's going to blame you for killing Eichmann. I don't think. Now, if you announce, if you announce it now to what's going on with Palestinians and Hamas, and should we be killing them, not killing them, trying them, what should we be doing? Why is it killing them? Well, oh, it's a radical. Imagine, rather than doing that, right now we're doing targeted assassinations, and really nobody's complaining about it. Because these are people who are terrorists, they're evil, they're blowing up innocent people, all that we know. But we're losing the public relations war, obviously enough. So what should we really be doing now? We should be doing this. Let's say we capture a Hamas person. Now let's say he says publicly to everybody at a trial. I want to kill Jews. I'm going to blow up every man, woman, and child that I find. Because they have, if they have an inch of my territory, an inch of my territory, I'm going to blow them up. Which is exactly what Hamas said two nights ago at Ted Koppel. Right? Saturday, I think it was Saturday night. Or maybe last Thursday night. Whatever, Wednesday night. Remember I was running. I think it was Wednesday night. Five miles. And, and that's what he said. So it was great. It was great. The couple says, wait a second, I said, I'm going to phrase that question again. Are you saying, as long as Israel occupies even one inch of your territory, you will continue all this? He says, yes. I couldn't have said it better myself. So now the world should understand, the couple understands, that how do we deal with this phenomenon? It's a fanatic, it's an extreme, and now what do we do? Sorry? Go after them. Well, no, but I want the world to know that message. I want to put him on trial and label it as such. Now, it might be what they say, which means maybe the Arab world, if they hear this message, are going to become further radicalized rather than realize what he's really all about. Because they're not a civilized group that are going to end up saying, oh, that's Hamas says? Oh, you're right, we should really change sides and support the Jews. They're not going to say that. They say, oh, that's the message? You're right. Let's get all 1.8 billion, 1.2 billion Arabs behind this. And Muslims behind this. And really destroy the Jews. What are we waiting for? So that's the fear, baby, of that. But at that point in time, in 1960, you have this phenomenon of a dramatic rescue. Front page, New York Times. World Report. Jews, persecution, Holocaust, hatred, indifference, state of Israel. Justice, legitimization of the trial, all of that is great, a great grist for the publication of this book, 1955. Gina. Oh, doesn't matter. Please. No, I was going to say, I think if you put that show on now, people aren't interested. The Eichmann trial? No, not the Eichmann trial. <coughs> you show Hamas saying that I'm oh. going to destroy him. 
people sort of know and if you put it on the television there's no interest now. it's a good question I'm not sure I don't think people know so I think people are I really seeing would be so pulled either would not be pulled if if they heard them say that I don't think they would I would imagine that uh, maybe you're right but after 9-11 which hits so close to home and the next step is going to be article uh, Atlantic Monthly uh, by somebody uh, I think two months ago that suicide bombing has become the new fad and it's going to come to the shores of America it's Atlantic Monthly back two or three months ago and it's going to happen here where you know this guy's going to blow himself up in, in, on Times Square and kill 15 or 20 people which is going to be a, a, a a cause celebration in the Islamic world which is of course shock to America which is going to then mobilize people as to what's going on in Israel as 9-11 did over here it's not going to happen until it happens here I don't think that they're going to right, I agree. Oh, it's going to come here so we have to it's going to come here that's what the stock was all about it's going to have to come here it's going to really it's going to really shock this country as 9-11 did which still it still is doing now we know what terrorism is all about so now we're going to know what suicide bombers are all about in a homegrown fashion. And could you imagine, you know, God forbid it should happen. I mean, uh, it's terrible. Could you imagine the reaction of how vulnerable we're going to feel? Just like it's 9-11. Yeah, but even more so. Because 9-11 was targeted to the economic center of, of America. Twin Towers. This would be random. Every street corner. Any place. Any deli. Any pizza place. If you have enough suicide bombers, it's going to drive people crazy. If the snipers of six to eight months ago drove three states crazy and only 10 11 people were killed by these two guys which was you know figure, we could figure it out this is who he was this is what he's doing whatever it was we figured it out at the end we caught them so he can't catch the Bible because he's dead he does his damage he does his damage and, and um, again uh, God forbid it's a horrible thought because it's not going to be one two four it's going to be you know Penn Station at rush hour or a bridge anything it's, and it's easy to do I think the scarier part about that is we're walking in September 11th now a lot of things are pointed towards Jews but I think if terrorism started here like the way it is in Israel I think Jews will be the first ones as another scapegoat type thing yeah no doubt how, how many yeah burn Jews not oil is what the Bible school said in 1970 yeah right. but how many times right. people say the Arabs say oh, the friends of the Jews uh, right. America yeah yeah some people will react that way the question is what, the, what America in quotes the Arabs on the street will say I think that's I'm not the average sure. person to say. So I just don't need the Jews. I'm not surprised that we don't have to worry because they're only going after Jews. No, they won't go after Jews. They'll go after everybody. 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 They would, they may, they, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's they're a good question. They're going to blame the Jews for it happening oh, at all. For, for it happening I'm not sure. Here. I, don't I was surprised that it didn't happen. Have, have I thought for sure they'd blame us, but they didn't. Some did. Some, some did. did. Some did. It wasn't so common. No, it wasn't. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It was yeah. that old thing that Jews were not in the trade. Israelis. Yeah, which is nonsense. nonsense. But the, the great lie that's works. That's a good thing. I'm sorry? No one took that really seriously. I think they would. The, the question is, who's the no one? Yeah, the, the no one intellectual? The no one yeah. business person? The American people. Okay, I don't know. I think some people did, but I'm not sure how many did. Okay, yeah, I agree. Okay, I hear that. Yeah, because Israelis did die. Jews did die in it. Yeah, sorry? Would somebody write, uh, would James Michener write that book today? And is this invite this cultural... I don't think so. That's a very good question that one should always ask about an author. I don't think so. In 1965, my point would be is that the Jews are appearing to be very heroic. It's David as Goliath. It's the moral stature of the, of the Jews because of the Eichmann trial. All these factors over here, I think, really painted Jews in a really positive fashion. And 
really the Hamad Salam is really very sad to say that we're not facing that way any longer. There's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in European, I just came back from Germany, uh, you know, they're blaming the Jews for the Iraqi war as well, you know, things like that, I mean, which is absurd, it's silly. They're calling it Sharon's Yeah, which is, which is crazy, I mean, it's absurd. And, and America as well, so it, it's, um, the Jews are not viewed. It's an interesting point because, again, we're looking at non-Jew, non-Jewish views of Jews and Judaism, and we're living really in a, in a down, I think, in the valley, in, in the bottom end of the sign curve. Whereas in the 60s, we were on a higher end and culminated in 67. It was an amazing event in 67, and how it culminated as, as really David slew Goliath. And it really became uh, a, matter for, a matter of a myth-making almost. But that's very quickly turned around, and became, we became the Goliath, and we are a downswing right now. And again, Israel doesn't help us. You know, Israel's got to do more public relations. It's got to do more explaining the case to the world court and things like that. And we're not doing enough of that. And that's the sad part. The sad part than that is that you have Jews oh, yeah. anti-Semitic to yeah, Jews. Sure. The bottom line Absolutely. is if a Holocaust happened yeah. again, whether you were religious or whether you don't observe yeah, they don't a care. thing, you know, being yeah. Jewish is going to be, in, you know, that's enough. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the Nutre uh, Karta embracing Arafat and, and saying that no, there was an article in the Times a couple of days ago, or pictures, or after whatever it was, that no legitimate Jew recognized the state of Israel. That's what they said. So you're right. That's certainly very true. Let me just close with one last point. So one could see how an author at that period of time would be captured for all these reasons of Jews and Judaism. Mishnah may have thought. I know that these people have been around for 2,000 years at least. Why have they survived? What mechanisms they use to survive? Do they have an interesting story to tell for me as a novelist? Right? So all of those are factors and variables that might bring a James Michener to write this book. Right? That's the case that I'm making. If it is in fact the case that I'm making, I would want you to confirm it by reading the last page. I, I, I was going to zero to put enough time when I was running here. But if you have a chance for next week, we'll just start with this last point. Read the last two pages and see whether or not all of these factors and variables give us a clue as to why this non-Jew wrote this very Jewish book. That's our question. Right? Why did this non-Jew write this very Jewish book? So I'm arguing that his message to the world is going to be on the last page, or last two pages. So even if you didn't read the rest of the book, just look at the last two, like every good teacher will tell you, just read the Kutz Notes. And, so I'm sorry, read the Kutz Notes. Just read the last two pages and see whether or not you can find the key to the book and the key to the reason as to why he wrote the book, last two pages. Okay, that's for next week, our last class. Thank you all for coming.